The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. Well, all right, we are looking at the issue of suffering in this letter of of 1 Peter. We have now for a number of weeks been been tackling this issue of of suffering from a number of different angles that the Apostle Peter gives us uh, in this, this text. We've been working under this understanding that we as believers, if we are the real thing, at some point and in some way, will suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter has been now looking to encourage these believers in their suffering. That's where Peter has been, where we have been over the last few weeks, looking at the ways in which Peter is encouraging Um, this church and our church in their suffering and preparing them for the suffering that is to come their way. Uh, Historically, where this letter finds itself is during the reign of Nero and either at the very beginning or shortly before one of the greatest periods of persecution that the church has ever known um, would take place in... uh, the Roman Empire. And so Peter's writing to prepare these believers for that suffering, to strengthen them and to encourage them in that suffering. And in doing so, is encouraging us and strengthening us and preparing us for our suffering in righteousness' sake. And we we said this a few weeks ago, that while we may not be like other brothers and sisters around the world today... And as they were in in Peter's day, while our lives may not be on the line for the sake of Jesus Christ, there should be at some point something that we give up, something that we suffer for the sake of of righteousness for the name of of Christ. And to do that, and to be prepared to do that, we must understand um, what suffering is. And how we can stand firm in that suffering. To understand that suffering for righteousness sake. Suffering for the name of of Jesus. this This is not suffering because of our dumb decisions. This is not the discipline of the Lord because of our sins. This is suffering because we desire to live a righteous life and honor Christ. That when suffering comes, that is not a punishment of God. Um, but it instead is the reality of the fallen world that we live in and a means of, of our sanctification in the hands of a sovereign God. We want to be encouraged in that. Now, this is really important to remember, all of that, when we come to this paragraph of, of Scripture. Because we find in these verses, verses... 18b through 22, arguably the most debated paragraph in all the scriptures. What we find in these verses is not just one difficult phrase or verse to understand, but two difficult phrases, two difficult verses to understand. And hopefully this morning, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will not only make sense of these verses, because let us be reminded that God is not a God of confusion. And God's Word is not something that by its nature is unclear or confusing. Because it comes out of the nature of God, and He is not unclear, and He is not confusion. Now, there are things that are hidden from us. They're hidden in this life. They will not be in the next. But God is not a God of confusion. His his word does not exist for the sake of confusion. So hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll make sense of these verses. 
But not only will we make sense of these verses, but we will see in these verses how this encourages us in our suffering. Because that's the point of the text. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. This is where we were last week. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's where we ended last week. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we're going to take this text, we're going to take it in two chunks. We'll work to make sense of these two chunks of scripture. As we do that, we're going to draw out some application from it, okay? So this, this message is much more of a, of a teaching than probably a, a preaching. So we're just going to look at the text, try to make sense of it. As we work through it, we'll draw applications, then Lord willing, we'll, we'll wrap it all up at the end. And hopefully, you'll leave here with some questions answered and some encouragement from God's Word. Now, Peter draws our attention to to Christ Jesus. This is where we were last week, right? That that our, our Savior, our Christ, suffered sufficiently for sins, securing our relationship with God. For Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that in this suffering, it was a suffering that led to death, being put to death. Jesus Christ suffered completely to the point of death. And in knowing that Jesus suffered that way, we know that, that he does not call us to a suffering that he himself has not bared, right? He suffered complete completely. So that even if we are called to suffer all the way to the, to the point of death, we can know that we're not entering into anything that Christ Jesus did not enter into. And he was put to death in the flesh. His body was crucified. He was really, literally dead. There are some who say he wasn't. That he was simply unconscious or close to death and then came alive and was able to miraculously rolled that stone away on his own and walked out. That is not the case. He suffered to the point of death. He was dead. And in that death, he was made alive in the spirit. He was brought to life spiritually, though he was dead. And then Peter makes this transition where he says that in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so here is the the difficult task of interpretation that we have before us as to what does this mean? That Jesus Christ, though being dead in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit and in the spirit went and preached to spirits who are now in prison. There are two main ways to interpret these verses. And one of these main ways have four interpretations within one of them. All right? There's probably more, but four that that I see. So I'm going to give these to you this morning. I'm going to lay them all out for you. 
I will tell you the ones that I feel like have no merit. I will tell you the ones that I feel like have merit. And I will tell you the one that I feel like is the better interpretation. So there's two main ways to interpret these verses. And here is the first. That between his death and his resurrection, that Jesus went on a preaching campaign. The one way to interpret these these texts is that in this time span between his death and his resurrection. Now, some will say between his death and his ascension. But I feel like if we're going to go this route, the most plausible way is to say between his death and his resurrection. Because we're talking about being made alive in the spirit, not a, a bodily resurrection. That between his death and his resurrection, within those three days, that Jesus in the Spirit was engaged in a preaching campaign that took place in Hades or hell or the place of prison, spiritual prison. So... The question then becomes, to whom was he preaching? So if this is the case, if, between his, if what Peter means is between his death and his resurrection, that Jesus was engaged in a preaching campaign, then to whom was it that he was preaching? And this is where there's, there's loads of, of different opinions, and I want to give them to you. The first is... That between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went to Old Testament believers who were held in captivity and liberated them. That's one interpretation. That is not a biblical interpretation, as far as I can tell. One, it's pretty clear from the text that these are people who, who did not obey. Two, it is found nowhere in the Bible that there was any sort of limbo for an Old Testament believer to wait in until the death of Jesus Christ to be freed. This goes against the, 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 the New Testament teaching and illustration of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. We don't see that there. There is really no biblical foundation that Jesus was on a liberation crusade. All of that taken and set aside, the question that I would ask is, if this was the case, why was it that he was liberating only one generation of people? Because this is specifically targeting the days of Noah. All right, so there are some who say this. I don't believe this is biblical. Another interpretation is that Jesus went between his, his death and his resurrection to, to the place of prison, spiritual prison, to offer a second chance at salvation. This is also not biblical. The Bible is clear that there there is no second chance after death of salvation. I want to show you one place. This is going to lead us into our third possible interpretation as well. This is uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, 
with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then we go on and on and on with examples. And here's the point that Peter's making. Is that if God does not spare angels but commits them to judgment, He will not spare us after our death. That there is no second chance of salvation. Our only hope for salvation is this life. It is too late in the next. And if you think that when you get before God, you can argue your way into heaven or that you will be offered another opportunity to trust Jesus Christ, you are mistaken. It is appointed once for man to die and then to judgment. That is it. This was not Jesus going into hell and offering a second chance of salvation. Third interpretation. That Jesus went and preached a message of victory to condemned angels. That when Peter uses the word spirit here, that he went in spirit and preached to spirits, that what Peter has in mind and what the Holy Spirit intends is that these spirits in prison are fallen angels condemned by God. Now I said that this text we just read would lead us into this third interpretation. We see in 2 Peter chapter 2 that there are angels, fallen angels, who have been condemned to chains, to prison. This is a plausible interpretation. So if someone comes to me and says, Jason, I read this, and with my study, I believe that between his death and his resurrection, Jesus descended into hell and preached a message of victory to fallen angels who were condemned to chains in the days of Noah, I would say, okay. There are a lot of really solid biblical theologians that take this viewpoint. John MacArthur takes this viewpoint. And it is a plausible understanding of the text. But I don't think it's the best interpretation. But if you have it, that's okay. Now, if you have the other two, I'm going to say you're wrong. All right? If you have this one, I'm going to say, okay, there's some potentiality there that this is the case. All right. Number four, fourth, the fourth way to interpret that, that Jesus was active in preaching between his, his death and his resurrection is that Jesus went and preached a message of victory to the condemned souls of people who rejected God in the days of Noah. Now, that, that these weren't fallen angels, that they were, these were the souls of, of people. Now... If someone said, hey, this is the way that I believe this is interpreted, I would say, okay. If that's the way you see it, then that's fine. My question then is, why is it only one generation of condemned people, right? So if Jesus was on a, a, a campaign, of a message of victory, why did he only preach to one generation of condemned people, not all generations of condemned people, okay? But this one, you know, is, is all right. So all of that to say, the one major possible interpretation is that Jesus was on a campaign of preaching victory either to spirits that are fallen angels condemned in the days of Noah or the spirits of people Condemned in the days of Noah. Either way, Jesus is on a campaign to preach victory. Now, that is a total probable 
interpretation of the text. And in that understanding, we are encouraged in our suffering, right? Because what we see in that is the victory of Jesus, even in his suffering. And if Jesus was victorious in his suffering, and we are Jesus' people, then we will be victorious in our suffering. That Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered sin. And if he was on a preaching campaign, that's what he was preaching, and that is encouraging. Okay? Everybody tracking with me? Plausible, those two, totally plausible interpretations. Now, where I struggle with that is that we see that really nowhere else in the Scriptures. There's nowhere else in the Scriptures that allude to Jesus being on a, a preaching campaign between his death and his resurrection that I have seen. Now, it is enough to say, if the Bible says it one time, it is right and true. I'm fine with that. Um, but I am also hesitant, and so should you, to draw hard and fast lines on anything that is, is alluded to, not explicitly clear in multiple places in the Scriptures. Does that make sense? Um, but that's, this is the only place. And so I'm hesitant because of that. Now with, with my, what I believe is a better interpretation, I, I, can, I can argue it from other places in the scriptures. Um, the other thing is that Jesus told the thief on the cross, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so it seems to me that Jesus had in mind that at his death he was going to be in paradise. Now that's not to say that he couldn't have went to paradise and went to, you know, spiritually been with God and then spiritually descended into hell. And then, you know, spirit, I mean, he's, he's, he's God for goodness sake, right? I mean, he can do what he wants to do. Um, but it's just what he, he, told, he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So I believe that there is a better interpretation. And I, I want to say, make it clear that I say better because I am not infallible. My interpretations are not infallible. And this may not be the right interpretation. And if it isn't the right interpretation, I am not in danger of losing my salvation. Amen. All right? Now, there are some things that if you misinterpret, you're in danger of losing your salvation. Yeah. But this ain't one of them. Okay? But nonetheless, we want to make sense of Scripture. Have I front-loaded this enough? All right. I believe that the better way to understand these verses is that it was the Spirit of Jesus through Noah that was preaching to a world that was rejecting His message. That... It was the Spirit of Jesus Christ through the person of Noah that was preaching to the world in Noah's day. And they were preaching to spirits then who are now in prison. That's the distinction. Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. In the Spirit. What, what I believe that means is being made alive in the spiritual realm. That there was spiritual life in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm, Jesus' body dead, but his spirit alive spiritually. That there is spiritual activity that's taking place that we do not see and we may not understand at the moment. And when Peter says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
What he means by that is in which in his spirit he was proclaiming to these, these spirits that are now in, in prison. That in the realm of the spiritual, that though it was Noah physically proclaiming, in the spiritual realm, it was the spirit of Christ doing the proclaiming through Noah. Now, I've said I can argue that from other places. I'll give you an example. Romans 1, verse 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he prophesied beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Which he prophesied beforehand through his prophets. That it is the Spirit of God prophesying through his instruments, the prophets, through the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament, prophesying, preaching, proclaiming about his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Right? He was being declared... To be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God in a spiritual exercise in the days of old through godly men. The Spirit of God was the one doing the proclamation, doing the proclaiming. We see that testified to throughout the Scriptures. And that's why I say I don't feel like it's a leap to say that this is what Peter intends here that as Noah proclaimed the coming judgment the grace of God it was the spirit of Christ through him that was doing the the proclaiming in in those days now I don't I rarely ever do this but I want to look at a a different translation other than the ESV of these verses. I feel like this is a better translation. Um, I don't do it because I'm all... If you ever go to a church, which hopefully you don't, hopefully you should go to this church, but if you ever go to a church and in the sermon there's, there's four or five or six different translations, it always throws up a red flag to me. Because it, it seems to me that the preacher's looking for something that would make sense of what he's wanting to say not just what the Bible says. But if you ever want to have just an afternoon of fun, go to Blue Letter Bible and start looking at these verses in each different translation. And there, there, there's more disagreement within the translation of these verses than most any other verse I've seen. Part of that is Peter uses language here, uses words here that are used nowhere else in the Scriptures. But I want to read it from the NASB. And it'll, it'll be on the screen. We didn't even know how to get the NASB on the screen this morning. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I mean, almost exactly the same as the ESV. But then comes verse 19. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now you'll notice, now is in parentheses there. Because there are words that are added in our translation for readability. And so the, the interpreters, the translators of these verses in the NSB felt the need for readability to add the word now. And I think that's an important distinction to make. That Christ was preaching in the Spirit then to spirits that are now in prison. It's not that they were in prison then. It is that they are in prison now. Do you all see and understand the distinction? Everybody tracking with me here? All right. So who did the preaching? 
It was the Spirit of God through Noah that did the preaching. When did the preaching take place? It took place in the days of Noah when the world was in disobedience. And to whom was the preaching to? It was to those who are now in prison because they disobeyed. That's the other interpretation. This is the interpretation that I, I tend to believe is the better interpretation. This makes, to me, this makes the most sense with the totality of Scripture, and it also makes sense in the context of suffering because that's our context, right, of encouragement in suffering. There is encouragement in that Jesus Christ is victorious, but there's also encouragement because what we see in the flood account is only eight souls being saved. That's what we see. It's so funny that this has become, you know, uh, a kid's story in toys, right? Here, let's play with these and reminisce about when God destroyed the world. <laughs> Only eight people were saved in the flood. Only eight. The whole world was destroyed. And for a hundred years, Noah proclaims the goodness of God in repentance and the warning of coming judgment. For one hundred years. And no one repented. And Noah and his family are a part of a minority community in the midst of a majority community that disobeyed God. Yet he was faithful. And because of his faithfulness, only eight persons were saved. Now we, in our suffering, as a part of a minority community in the midst of a majority community, are called to follow the pattern of Noah. And to proclaim the goodness of the grace of God in repentance of sin and the trust of Jesus Christ. To follow his example, even if it means a hundred years of preaching and never seeing a single convert. We're called to be faithful. We're called to stand firm. We're called to suffer. We're called to not be swayed by numbers. But to faithfully honor God. Believers today like Noah are called to testify to the hope of the gospel. Before a world that scorns and mocks us because of our message. And if no one ever believes... Our work isn't futile. Jesus is still victorious. And so are we. This is the encouragement for our suffering that I see in this account. Peter draws us to Noah, who through the Spirit of Christ proclaimed Goodness of God and repentance in the coming judgment for a hundred years and no one repented. You don't think he was suffering for that? You don't think he was mocked for that? You don't think he was ostracized for that? You don't think he was outcast for that? Yet he remained faithful. And God was gracious to save his family. And they were victorious. And so we will be victorious. Because this is our victory. Our victory is our salvation. That's our victory. That's our victory. Our victory is our salvation. Our victory is not they have a great moral failing. Our victory is not they lose a whole lot of things. Our victory is not their life goes bad and ours goes good. Our victory is our salvation. And we have to 
understand that. Our victory may not be what we want it to be in this life. But by God's grace, we will be brought safely through the judgment of God. And that's our victory. That's what we see in Noah. That's our encouragement in our suffering. And that leads Peter to his next thought through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here we go again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism. Which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, what do we do with this? And I will admit, this is difficult. This is more difficult than he went and preached to spirits. It's difficult because Peter's using words and language here that are not found anywhere else in the Bible. This, this word here, um, an appeal, nowhere else is it found. But I believe that we can make good and right sense and a good and right application. And if you're wondering, Jason, what are you talking about? I'm talking about baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So, what's happening here? Peter is speaking of water. He's speaking of the, the water of the flood. A water that was both judgment to the world and a water that brought Noah and his family safely through. The water that judged the old world brought safely Noah and his family into the new world. And this is analogous. It corresponds, Peter says, to the water of baptism. The baptism waters take us from the old world, from a, an old kingdom, the kingdom of this world, and an old self, and it brings us into the new world and a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and a new self being born again. This is the analogy that Peter is giving. This is the connection between Noah's physical salvation and our spiritual salvation. All right? That's what Peter's doing here. He's drawing an analogy between the, the physical salvation of of Noah and his family through water and he's drawing an analogy to our spiritual salvation through baptism. And so Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, this, this water that brought him safely through, now saves you. And this is the difficulty. So let's just get a clear foundation here, Okay? The Bible never in one place upends the scriptures in other places. Like we've got to understand that. You understand what I'm saying there? God's word never in one place upends what God's word says in other places. So when we come to this and we see baptism saves you, that would upend in other places where we're saved by grace and not by works. We're saved by faith and repentance. So we have to work off of that understanding. Peter's not upending Paul. 
And what we see here, I believe, is what we see happen in other places in the scriptures where things symbolized and the substance are so closely related they can stand in place for one another. That there are symbols and there are is substance, right? And so a symbol represents a substance. A symbol represents the real thing. And there are times in Scripture where the symbol and the substance are so closely tied together that they can stand in place for one another. And I believe that's what we see happening here. Here's what I mean by that. Baptism is the symbol of the substance of our salvation. Baptism doesn't save us. The substance of our baptism saves us. Baptism is a symbol of that substance. So what saves us? The grace of God saves us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ saves us. And our, in our faith, a faith that says, I'm dying to my old self, I'm being buried with Christ, and I'm being raised again, that's what saves us. And that's what baptism symbolizes. And these are so closely related that one can stand in place of the other and not up in the other. Let me give you an example. Acts 22, starting in verse 12. This is... Is Paul talking about his salvation experience. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I perceived my sight and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, And to hear the voice from his mouth. And you will be a witness to him. To everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. And wash away your sins. Calling on his name. Rise and be baptized. Washing away your sins. Now. Baptism does not. Wash away our sins. Faith in Jesus Christ removes our sins. But they're so closely tied together that they can be used interchangeably. And they're used interchangeably here. Do you, do you, you see it? What is clear in the text in 1 Peter is that Peter even qualifies this for us. Look at what he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And then he gives us what baptism is not. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but what is baptism, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter's saying. Baptism saves you, but it does not save you as removing dirt from your body. It does not save you as washing away sins. Because baptism is just an outward thing. It's a symbol, not the substance. But what baptism is, it is a part of an appeal to God for a good conscience. And it is our appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that saves us. How are we saved? We are saved when we come before God with an appeal, asking God, would you give me a clean and good conscience? That implies the understanding that I know I don't got one. And I can't earn one. That He has to give me one. And so when I come before Him, I come before Him asking Him, God, would you give me a clean, clear, good, holy conscience? Because I don't have it. I can't make it. Only you can give it. And would you give it to me? And would it come to me through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is what saves us. 
Our appeal to God for salvation is what saves us. And the baptism that we take is a part of that appeal in that it symbolizes that appeal. And I believe it is our public profession of faith. That's what baptism is. And this same Jesus who suffered, and remember, that's where we started, this same Jesus who suffered, it's the same Jesus that was and is victorious over our suffering and has now ascended to heaven at God's right hand and is in authority over all things. That's verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I believe this helps us in our suffering in two ways. The first is we can know that Jesus Christ is in control. That's verse 22. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. And that he is in authority over every single spirit, every angel, every authority, every power. Everything has been subjected to him. And I like the way John Piper says it. He says, this is so that when Satan comes to us in and through suffering, we can look at him and boldly say, you're a cat on a leash. You're a cat on a leash. You have no authority. Jesus Christ holds the leash. And he can let it out and he can pull it up. By the power of his word. That's encouragement. That's encouragement. The second way that I believe this whole thing of baptism encourages us is that when suffering comes and the world threatens to take our lives, we can look back at our baptism and say, go ahead, I'm already a dead man. That's what our baptism proclaims. I'm a dead man. I've already died. I died to my old life. I died to my old self. And I am now hidden in God And my spirit is alive. And you can't touch it. You can take my life. That's fine. I'm already a dead man. Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, for I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, then I will also appear with him in glory. I made the changes there. I've died. My life's been crucified. I've been hidden with him. And because of that, You can take away my life. I'm already a dead man. You see, when we see this, when we get this, when we understand this, suffering no longer is that scary, is it? There's not a thing, not a thing this world can do. 
there's not a thing. When we realize we're dead people, we hold loosely to the things of this world. When we realize that our lives are now hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ appears, who is our life, we will also appear with Him in glory. And that we will reign with Him for all of eternity. Now we understand that the minuscule, momentary comforts of this world, if they're taken away, mean nothing compared to the eternity with Jesus Christ. Why would we willingly give in to one one zillionth of our time in comfort when we could have an eternity with Him? That strengthens us. That encourages us in our suffering. We're encouraged by Noah and his faithfulness. And we see in him God bringing him and his family safely through to salvation. And that's an encouragement. We might see Jesus proclaiming victory. And that's an encouragement. And we see in our baptism being safely brought through to salvation by water, just like Noah. And that's an encouragement. And we see in our baptism that we are dead men and women. And that's an encouragement. Isn't it amazing how some verses that are difficult and maybe a little obscure and kind of hard to understand that we can walk away full of encouragement? I hope you do. That's Peter's goal. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.